preacher back in the day in Virginia when I was in Newport News Station there, you know, if that didn't get you fired up, your wood's wet, right? Tell you what. I mean, hey, wouldn't it, what if, Maple Grove, what if all the stuff that, that we just sang about was true? What if God really has shown us grace? What if God really has lifted our shame? What if God really has broken every chain? And what if God, the one true, all-powerful, all-knowing God, is even now at this moment drawing us to himself with his loving kindness? And what if what if Jesus really has paid it all? I mean, what if Jesus really did pay a debt he didn't owe because you and I owed a debt we could never pay? And what if Jesus really did take our, our sin that was a crimson stain and he washed it so that it's whiter than snow? And, and, and what if we really can come as we are? Broken, troubled, hurting, stained, hopeless, doubtful, deficient, dysfunctional, and what if in that coming, rescue can actually begin? I mean, what, what if it's true that earth really does know no sorrow that heaven can't heal? And, and, and what if, no matter how dark it may look, that joy really will come in the morning? What if it's all true? Well, with great pleasure, I stand before you this morning and declare based on the authority of the word of God that, that every, every word that we sang about our God is true. Every word is true. So lay down your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. A wanderer, come home. You've been wandering but you're not too far. Lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, and come as you are. Come as you are. Fall in his arms and come as you are. Maple Grove, 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave a life-changing invitation that still stands this very day. He said it in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And you know what? I, I, I think some folks in here, that, that's what you need. You, you, you're, you're thinking you need a vacation, right? Some time at the beach, some time in the mountains, take a trip to Disney World or, or Universal, some time in a cabin by a lake. You think you just need rest. But maybe what you need is rest for your soul. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. Would you pray with me? Father Jesus, we humbly come into your presence. There is indeed nobody like you. Nobody compares to you. God, that you would allow people like us to come into your presence. We are fail, frail, finite, falling, broken, fragile, messed up, and yet you allow us into your throne room. And Father God, I, I pray that somehow you would find a way, Lord, to break through all the mess that we may hear your voice, Father, uh, above all this noise. Father, I pray that you enable us to breathe out all the junk that once is standing in the way of us connecting to you today. Nothing is worth that. Nothing is worth us not hearing you. God, I pray that you'll enable me to speak your message in the way that you want. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Well, we're in, we're in this series called Tuned In, Hearing His Voice Above the Noise. One of my favorite series for many reasons. One is because it enabled me to go, have a reason to go out and buy some beats. And they, these things just are incredible. But it's a series about overcoming the lies and noise of the enemy with the voice and promises of God. And, and, and I got to tell you that, that this series could not have come at a better time for me personally. I, I got to tell you, since we kicked off this series on May 3rd, there has been so much noise 
There's been, there's been so many voices whispering and shouting in my head trying to distract me. But you know what? All I had to do is I had to put these on and I began to hear his voice above the noise. Because I, I know, and you, you, you should know as well, that it's the, it's the voice, that, that voice that we believe will determine the future that we experience. The voice we believe determines the future that we experience. And we have said throughout this series that an essential part of, uh, uh, of you and I hearing his voice, above, it's noisy out there, isn't it? I mean, is there stuff trying to get in your head and trying to distract you? Stuff that's definitely not of God? We said in such a part, it's to hear his voice above the noises for us to embrace, to, to speak, to, to live out, and to hold on to five confessions with, uh, I ain't letting go of this. You're going to have to pry these confessions out of my dead hands determination. Five confessions that are intended to overpower and overthrow the lies of the enemy so that we can overcome the noise he's using to weaken our faith, corrupt our worth, derail our destiny, depress our souls, crush our hope, and distract us from our true mission. Get it? And, And the confession, God says I am, empowers us to overcome insecurity. And notice it's God says I am. Not, not, not other people say I am, but God says I am. See, what matters is not what other people say about you or think about you or perceive about you. It's what the great I am says about you. And if you're in Christ Jesus, the great I am says, you're pretty awesome. You're, you're pretty special. You're, you're pretty precious to me. And then the confession God says he will empowers you and I to overcome fear that wants to hold us back. And when it comes to fear, you know, um, we have to nip it, nip it, nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud, right? And and, and I'll tell you, I've been taking a few nips over the last few weeks, those kind of nips, you know. And and the N in that stands for never forget that whatever is surrounding you, there's something surrounding you right now, bigger than you, better than you, mean and nasty, causing you worry and fear. Whatever is surrounding you, God is surrounding it. Never forget that. I increase your fear of, of missing out so that it's greater than your fear of messing up, right? And, and P, pursue your what if straight to the bottom. I mean, ride those suckers straight down. I mean, what if the worst thing happens? What if... What if it happens? That would be awful. That would be terrible. What if that would? God will, right? God's going to be there. No matter what happens, God's there at the bottom to pull you up. And then the confession, God says, it's not about me, and empowers us to overcome self-centeredness so that in the end of all things, we don't find out that, that we actually we gained the whole world, that we had things our way, but we actually forfeited or lost our very self, our very soul. Maple Grove, this stuff is huge. Understand that there's a God, and there's a God who has a plan for your life, and it's a good plan. And there's an enemy who wants to destroy that plan, who wants to, dis- who wants to steal that plan from you. And, and three of his most effective weapons for stealing, killing, and destroying the destiny that is rightfully ours as sons and daughters of the sovereign king of the universe is by keeping us bound up in fear, by trapping us in feelings of insecurity, and and, and by getting us to be so self-centered that we think everything is about us and our own small little story. Bottom line, the insecure, the fearful, and the self-centered will never live the life God created to live. Get it? Good. But these confessions help us overcome that. We're going to do these confessions three times in a row. I do, my, I do my part. I do the God says, you do yours. Three times in a row, right? God says. God says. God says. Okay, we're, we're going to rewind that one. I didn't, I didn't believe you, all right? God says. God says. God says. No, three times in a row. Wow, we're really, okay. We're going to do each one three times in a row, okay? Okay. Mitch Miller followed a bouncing ball. All right, it's good. It's good. And these are all true, right? Three times in a row, okay? And like, it's really like true, right? Okay. Um, 
three times in a row. God says, I am. God says, I am. God says, I am. God says, I am. God says, God says, God says, God says, God says, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. We did good. We did good. And this morning, we're, we're going we're gonna to unpack another confession that, like the first three, is grounded in God's Word and God's promises. Uh, today, June 7th, we're going to learn how to overcome feelings of shame and condemnation with the confession, God says He has. God says He has. And remember, the voice you believe determines the destiny or the future you will experience. And, and, and to get started, I, I, I want to try to... Um, define and to describe shame. Here's a definition of shame I found on the internet. So it's got to be true, right? Uh, shame, a painful emotion caused by the awareness of having done something wrong or foolish. A pervasive negative emotional state, usually originated in childhood, marked by chronic self-reproach and a sense of personal failure. And here's a couple of descriptions of shame that, that I found in some books I have on the topic. Um, uh, this one, Edward Welch, Shame Interrupted. I just got that one. One clicked it. It's pretty good. Um, shame is the deep sense that you are unworthy because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and you feel humiliated. And a guy named Lewis Meads wrote a book called Shame and Grace, Healing the Shame We Don't Deserve, it says this. If you have a nagging feeling that you do not measure up to the person you ought to be, the generic label for what you feel is shame. When we have shame, we persistently feel that we are not acceptable, maybe not worthy, and are less than the good person we're supposed to be. Shame is a vague, undefined heaviness that presses down on our spirit, deepens our gratitude for the goodness of life, and seconds the free flow of joy. Shame is a primal feeling. The kind that seeps into and discolors all and discolors all other feelings, primarily uh, about ourselves, but about almost everyone and everything else in our lives as well. And, and then a little later, um, uh, Louis Mees goes on to talk about what he calls, you know, shamed um, uh, tone feelings. Uh, these are feelings that he's a he's a professor and a counselor. These are feelings that people shared with him or feelings that he himself have had, and these feelings are, are motivated and fueled by a sense of shame. Here, here's some of them. Um, I sometimes feel as if I'm a fake. I feel that if people who admire me really knew me, they might have contempt for me. I feel inadequate. I seldom feel as if I am up to what is expected of me. When I look inside myself, I seldom feel any joy at what I am. I feel inferior to the really good people that I know. I feel as if God might be disgusted with me. I feel flawed, blemished somehow, dirty sometimes. I feel as if I just can't measure up to what I ought to be. I feel as if I will never be acceptable. Shame, tone, feelings, right? Fueled and inflamed by the lies of the enemy. And my guess is we don't have to admit it, but I got a, I got a pretty good feeling that every one of us at some time in our lives have felt feelings of shame just like those. Or maybe we're even feeling them now. People grow feelings of shame and condemnation. They're real. Uh, they are uh, pervasive. They're not fun. And they're, they're times very debilitating. And listen, shame, like fear, insecurity, and self-centeredness are, are powerful weapons of the evil one intended to keep us bound and to keep us far from the life that God intends for us. Get it? Good. And, and the confession that, that I want us to begin to unpack today and begin to embrace to help us overcome shame is the confession God says he has. And, and, and the way I, I want us to unpack it is I, I want to talk about pictures and contrast. Uh, uh, first, I, I want to talk about some pictures of shame that we see in the Bible. And, and then I want to talk about some contrast that, that we need to understand because sometimes, you know, it's hard to distinguish what is shame and, and what is actually a, a, of God, okay? Pictures and contrast. Picture number one, in the beginning. Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. 
And sometimes our lives feel that way, right? Empty, formless, and dark. But, but, but did you know, I, I love the next part of this, right? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And I got to tell you, if you're feeling a little empty, a, 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 a little dark, a little formless in your life today, I want you to know that Holy Spirit is hovering today. In verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, that's the power of God's words. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. And God saw the light was good. He said, man, I'm good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, called the light day and the darkness night, and even in past, and morning came, marking the first day. And that powerful a creative cadence continued. God said, and there was. Day two, God said, and there was water and sky. Day three, God said, and there was land and plants. Day four, God said, and there were the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, God said, and there was birds and fish. Day six, God said, and there was all these crazy animals skirting along the ground. Then God said, in Genesis 1:26, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked and they what? Felt no shame. Understand, it all began so well. In the beginning, there was absolutely no shame with people walking around naked, literally and figuratively. I mean, they had no concerns with their bodies because they were flawless, and they had no concerns with what they had done because they hadn't done anything wrong, and they feared no one's critical judgment because no one was critical or condescending. Nakedness without shame. To be known without feeling exposed. To live without any need for self-protection. It all sounds so awesome, doesn't it? But listen, that era didn't last long. However, it's very important for us to begin there. Because if you ever felt like, like shame should not be part of the human story, if you ever felt like shame should not, feeling shame and condemnation should not be part of your story, guess what? You're right. You're right. You were never, and I were never, intended to carry such a load. Understand, shame is an intruder. And as such, it can be kicked out of the garden of our lives. So in the very beginning, there's no shame. And then enter the evil one who engages Eve in a conversation. And, and, and like I said before, you know, um, never forget that, that having the wrong conversation, listening to the wrong voices can mess up your life and mess up the lives of others. And so she engages in the wrong conversation. She, she has a dialogue with the devil. He convinces her to doubt God, to focus on herself. And we read, the woman was convinced. She wasn't convinced before, but this noise and voices convinced her of something that wasn't true. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open. Suddenly, they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. I, I mean, I don't know what they use for thread, but they're, they're, you know, did they go that? Was there a Joanne Fabrics down the street? I don't think so. But they're, you know, they're sewing these fig leaves, and, and they're trying to cover up their shame. But I got to tell you, we can't cover up our shame on our own. I mean, we may try success, pleasure, possessions, accomplishment, and applause, but I got to tell you, they're just fig leaves. All those things are just fig leaves. They're not going to work. When the cool evening breeze was blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking around the garden and Adam saying, you know what? I don't think these fig leaves are working. Eve, let's jump in some bushes. So they hid from God among the trees. And the Lord called the man. Where are you? He replied, I, I heard you walk in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I, I was naked. 
hiding, covering up, self-protection, feeling exposed. They're telltale signs of, of shame, and, and they were birthed in the garden. Who told you you were naked? The Lord asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat from? And it was here again. Here's that, here, at this point, the blame game was birthed as well. You know what that is, right? It's everybody's fault but yours, right? I mean, Adam blamed the serpent. I mean, Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve, and Adam blamed God. And note, trying to fix the blame rarely fixes the problem. You know, if, if hey, let me fix you, Dan, and then we can fix our problem. That just doesn't work. Maple Grove, we overcome shame and condemnation with the confession God says he has. And so Adam and Eve, they're naked and they're feeling shame. But, but in, in the midst of that shame, God says, hey, I have a plan. I have a plan for covering you up. I have a plan that is greater than fig leaves and hiding in the bushes. And he reveals that plan. It's the first prophecy about the coming of our King Jesus Christ, Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head or crush it, and you will strike his heel. You see, in the beginning, God's intent was for there to be no shame. Another truth we see in this passage is that Satan's intent from the very beginning was to get mankind to sin so he would feel shame. Number three, but even in the midst of our shame, God has a plan to set things right. God says he has. Picture number two, I am the man. That story about David. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and Israelite's army to fight. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And right there you go, dude, that's where we mess up, right? Whenever we're not where we're supposed to be and not doing the stuff we're supposed to be doing, right, that's when we find we're going to get ourselves in trouble. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty and taking a bath. And you may know the rest of the story, but let me give the cliff notes, and you can check it out yourself, 2 Samuel chapter 11. But David has Bathsheba brought to him. He commits sexual sin with her. She gets pregnant and trying to cover up his sin. He winds up killing one of his most loyal officers in his army. And for at least a year, David hides this sin in his heart. He, he's bound up in shame. And then one day, God sends a prophet named Nathan to confront him with a little story, you know, that, 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 about a, a sheep and, and a, a guy that had one little sheep. You can check it out. But the bottom line, after there's a story, David realized, wait a second, I'm the man. I'm the man in that story. I'm the man that took, that wasn't mine. I'm the man that betrayed somebody. And, and, and then he writes Psalm 51. He hid his sin, but now for 3,000 years, we've been reading about it. I don't know if we would do that. But here's, he describes how he felt while caught up in shame. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You, know, you say, I'm so bad. I'm so wicked that even when I was in the womb, a little baby, you know, I was sinning. I kicked my mom when I shouldn't have kicked my mom, right? You know, you know I, I don't know how you sin in the womb, but he's just exaggerating his situation. He feels so shameful. But just like in the garden, God has a plan for David's shame. David says to God, you do not desire a sacrifice, so I would offer one. Ain't nothing I can do. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire, God, is a, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. God says he has a plan in the midst of our shame. Picture number three, I call this one the rooster crows. Jesus has just been arrested and then seizing him, Luke writes, they, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a what? At a distance. At a distance. <laughs> Have you ever tried to follow Jesus at a distance? You see, we, we can, you know, we can 
We can be in this very room and our hearts can still be far from God. I can stand up here and preach and my heart can be far from God. We can say the right things. We can, we can sing the right songs, but our hearts can be far from God. We can still be following Jesus from a distance. And let me tell you, when we're following Jesus from a distance, we're only one or two steps away from denial. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked close at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, surely this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know. Some version said with a curse he said this. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord has spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I mean, can you imagine what he was feeling? I mean, he had to be almost drowning in feelings of shame and condemnation. But listen, in the midst of Peter's shame, God says he has. God says he has a plan to deal with Peter's shame. In fact, even as Jesus predicts Peter's denial, he says this to him in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to shift all of you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter, I know you're going to say some things that you wish you didn't say it, and I know you're going to do some things that you wish you didn't do. But Peter, in the midst of that, I prayed for you. And I prayed, Peter, that, that, that your faith in me, your faith may not fail. And Peter, when you turn back, and I know you're turning back, strengthening the brothers. In the midst of his shame, God says he has. And, and, and Peter, on that very first Easter Sunday, he, he got a special invitation. Uh, Mark says this in Mark 16, 7. Um, but go tell the disciples... Uh, it's the angel telling the women, hey, Jesus is gone, the tomb is empty, he's alive. But go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you in the Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, the resurrection chapter of the Bible, Paul says this about Jesus' appearance. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. You see, and it was here. I, I, we don't know when it happened. We don't know where it happened. But, but he had a special encounter with Jesus. And I got to tell you, in my opinion, when he had that encounter, um, that is when the rooster, the crow of the rooster was redeemed and reprogrammed by the grace of God. Up until that time, the rooster crowing, right, reminded him of his sin. But Jesus met him, and now the rooster crowing reminded him, yeah, you messed up, but even in the midst of my messing up, there is forgiveness. And there is grace. Amen? Final picture, freed by grace, Paul. In Romans 7, Paul talks about this universal struggle that, that, that you and I have and it was sin, right? Paul says, you know, there's, there's these good things I want to do. I don't do them. And it's bad stuff that I, that, 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 that I don't want to do and I, I say I'm not going to do it and, and I pray about I'm not going to do it, but I, but I keep on doing it. And then he says this, and you can just see he is just immersed in shame and condemnation. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Because that's what shame wants to do, right? You didn't just do a bad thing. You're a bad person. You're bad. Didn't just do bad. And he says this, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? But again, in the midst of his shame, God says he has. God says he has a plan. And to the question, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death, Paul answers his own question. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maple Grove, 
Jesus paid it all. Maple Grove, on the cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus bore my condemnation and yours on that cross so that we do not have to. Amen? Amen. Is that good news? I mean, if it's true, it's like crazy true. Now for some contrast uh, that will help us understand that this, this concept of, of shame and condemnation. Our first contrast is guilt and shame. What's the difference? Well, we feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for who we are. A, a person feels guilty because he did something wrong. A person feels shame because he is something wrong. See, that's Paul saying, I am, what a miserable person I am. Some versions read, what a wretched man I am. David says, I was sinful even in the womb. That's how bad I am. You think you're bad? I, I, I was sinning at conception. That's shame. See, shame and condemnation, they, they want to they make our sin and our failures and our shortcomings our identity. Shame says, shame says, you didn't just do something wrong. Shame says something wrong was not just done to you. No, shame says you are something wrong. Shame wants your sin to define you. And now when we sin and turn our backs on God, on who God calls us to be and what God calls us to do, we, we, we should feel guilty and we should repent and we, we should change because God says he has. He has a plan to deal with that. Paul painted this incredible picture in Colossians chapter 1, you used to be far from God. Your thoughts made you his enemies, and you did evil things. Right? That's everybody in this room. But his son became a human and died. So God made peace with you, and now he lets you stand in his presence as people who are holy and faultless and innocent. And once we are forgiven, God, God didn't forgive us to rub, rub our noses in our sin. So we will carry shame. You are not your sin and your failures. You're not. Contrast number two is the difference between conviction and condemnation. And out of the gates, let me just say that conviction is good, condemnation is bad. Conviction is good, condemnation is bad. Uh, conviction is the, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's intended to make us aware of our shortcomings and motivate us to deeper longings to be like Christ. That's conviction. And it's good. Condemnation is the work of the evil one. It's intended to discourage us and paralyze us. And listen, condemnation's favorite mode of operation is to use the three little peas. Once upon a time, there were three little peas. And I don't like these peas. And we're going to talk about these peas. But first I want to illustrate these peas by an act of idiocy on my part one time. So, several months back at night, it's probably even on Sunday night as I'm thinking about preaching for God, um, laying in bed wanting to get some sleep, my son comes in and informs me, Baba, that's a Chinese word for dad, uh, the door fell off the bathroom cabinet. And I did not respond very well. What do you mean the door fell off the cabinet? How does that happen? Is that what doors do? I mean, is that, is that what doors normally do? Doors just normally fall off the cabinet all by themselves. Are you telling me that was happened? You didn't touch it? It just fell off? Are doors falling off cabinets everywhere? Or is it, I mean, Yeah. Not my finest moment. Not my finest moment. And, and, and my wife was beside me, and she was, she was quiet, you know, allowing, me to allowing God to deal with me. And the Holy Spirit was convicting me because I was wrong. That behavior was totally unacceptable. And that conviction did lead to repentance. And, man, I went in, and, man, he's in his bed. He's eight years old. He's in there crying. What did, I mean, and I said, buddy, I am so sorry. He forgave me. And I laid in bed with him and held him, and we just laid in bed for about a half hour, you know. And, 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 but I got to tell you, it, it, it wasn't just the voice of conviction that was talking. It was also the voice of condemnation that was cranking up. It was getting pretty loud. 
And it was singing in my ears uh, the favorite number one hit song downloaded on iTunes of the Three Little Peas. What's wrong with me? I always mess up everything. What's wrong with me? What, what kind of dad am I? What kind of dad talks that way to an eight-year-old? What kind of pastor does something like that? I always do this. I always mess up everything. You see, the three little Ps of negative thinking are, and we know when our thinking's going negative is when it is personalized, when it is permanent, and when it is pervasive. What's wrong with me? You see, condemnation always wants you to speak in the first person. Paul. What, what a miserable person I am. It wants you to speak in first person about your flaws and your failures. And, and to agree that, that's appropriate, e- even helpful. I mean, God expects us to take our sins personally. And, and, and listen, blaming other people or circumstances for our ungodly behavior is even more destructive than blowing it off. So obviously it's necessary and profitable to own up to our dysfunction. But the problem comes when we go beyond confessing our sins, agreeing with God about them, and to defining ourselves according to those sins. You see, condemnation doesn't say you just made a bad decision. It says you're a horrible person. Condemnation doesn't just say, hey, you lost your temper that time. But no, you're a person that's always out of control. Condemnation takes what you did and makes it into who you are. It makes it personal. Condemnation attempts to get us to define ourselves by what we did rather than according to what Jesus Christ has already done. Yes, our sin is our personal responsibility, but in Christ, it's no longer the center of our identity. Get it? Good. Permanent. I always... Condemnation loves to protect, project. Condemnation loves to project the past into the future, thus squeezing out the potential of life in the present. It loves to project the past into the future, thus squeezing out the potential of life in the present. I always do this. I'm always going to be this way. I'm never going to change. It's never going to be any different. You, you see. Here's what condemnation does. It it points out your sin, you did this wrong, and then it tells you, you're never going to change. Yeah, you got this problem, but you'll never fix it. You'll never be any different. In contrast, every time the Holy Spirit convicts us about a sin in our life, uh, we can be assured at the same time, he's giving us an invitation. Hey, hey, hey. like that night, he's like saying, hey, Steve, can we talk about that? (laughs) Like, dude, what was that about? What were you thinking? What made you think that was right? You, you need to change that. And do you mind if I help you? Could, Holy Spirit says, could I, could, I, could I help you change that? See, condemnation says, no, you're messed up and you'll never change. Conviction says, by the Holy Spirit says, yeah, you're messed up, but you know what? I can help you change. Amen. Conviction is a gift from God. Condemnation is a lie of the evil one. See, condemnation will construct a gallows, which you hang people on, out of our flaws and failures. But the Spirit's conviction will point us to the cross where the cost of our sins has already been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Father's compassion will fill us with forgiveness and raise us to new life. Amen? Amen. It's also pervasive condemnation. I mess up everything. Not just one thing, everything. Have you seen those commercials about the terrible things that will happen to you if, if you don't switch to DirecTV? Um, here's the here's script of one of them. It won't be as funny as watching. Um, you know, when, when your cable comes to keep you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. When people want to see how tough, you end up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Hey, I'm just holding for the cable lady. How did that, like, how did I get an eye patch and wind up in a ditch? How, how did that happen? How did it just go everywhere? See, Condemnation is pervasive. It's not satisfied to wreck one room in your life. It wants to cut the gas line, light a match, and blow the whole thing up. 
mess up. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You always mess up everything. Conviction says, hey, can we work on that? Can I, can I help you fix that? Contrast number three, advocate and accuser. If you had to describe the devil's main activity in one word, you, know, you might use the word temptation. He's definitely good at that, right? We see that in the garden, but I don't think temptation is the devil's main activity or his most deadly weapon. And the last book in the Bible, the Apostle John gives an eyewitness preview of the epic battle between good and evil. And in that account, he calls Satan by name that he's called nowhere else in the Bible. He calls him the accuser. Maple Grove, you have an accuser. Revelations 12.10 says this, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, packly tight, packed tightly in that one word title is a revelation of the most devastating game the enemy plays with the hearts of God's children. See, Satan's main job isn't temptation, it's accusation. Now, of course, they work together, right? It's a great partnership. We see in the garden, right? I mean, he, he, the serpent gets them to do what they're not supposed to do. He tempts them. You know, and, and then they got to ask the question, who told you you were naked? You know what I think did? I think the serpent did. <laughs> I think he said, hey, eat the fruit. Eat the fruit. It's really good. Once he ate, once he ate the fruit, how could you do such a thing? Eve, I thought you loved God. You, you have all this fruit. God has done so much good for you. Why would you do something like that? What a terrible, uh, what a terrible start to humanity you are. You just screwed up the whole human race forever. You know, you see, the accuser, devil, once he gets us to sin, he pounces on us and pounces on us and pounces on us. As I said from the outset of the series, our enemy is a liar. If he's talking, he's lying. But here's the deal with when we do something wrong, uh-uh. Sometimes his lies have some truth in them. And if we're not, we're not careful of this, we'll misappropriate endless time and energy trying to argue with the devil why what we did wasn't wrong. And we never win an argument with the devil. Kind of like my, my cabinet latch match, my cabinet latch meltdown, which by the way took two minutes and two screws to fix, right? As I thought about what I did, you know, suddenly like a new strategy occurred to me. Go with it. Go with it. You hear what he's saying about you? Go with it. I mean, it, it wasn't like there was zero truth in, in what the enemy was saying. It, it, it was the conclusions that were killing me. See, he wasn't telling me outright lies. He was just giving me half the truth. And the best thing I could do was not to ignore the reality or justify my sin. I just needed to finish the sermon that the devil started preaching to me. In other words, I needed to acknowledge that I had sinned. But then I needed to have my advocate stand in my defense. Maple Grove, you have an accuser, but you also have an advocate. You have somebody who stands in your defense. Actually, you have a double advocate according to Scripture. Jesus said in John 15 that last night of his arrest towards the garden, he says, but I will send you, what, the advocate. He's a lawyer, right? Good lawyer, right? I mean, he's the best lawyer, right? Went to all the good schools, right? He's a good lawyer. The spirit of truth. And then John says this, my dear children, I'm writing to this so that you will not sin. But you're really going to sin. Huh? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Understand my attitude was terrible. The way I spoke to my son, Gentile, was unacceptable. And I did need to apologize and seek forgiveness. It was wrong. It was ugly. It was unjustifiable. Even, but even through all of this, it was like God was saying to me, but Steve, hey, the devil is only giving you half of the sermon. He's singing you verse after verse, but he's not letting you listen to the chorus of my grace and redemption. No, my actions that night did not reflect God's love but they did not weaken it or make it go away either. Because it's a love not based on what I do, but on what Jesus Christ has done. And you know what I believe? I believe that God 
love me just as much as when I am shredding my own son with verbal missiles. He loves me just as much then as he loves me now when I'm standing up here proclaiming his word. It's the same love. It's the same love. It's the same grace. It's the same God. Yeah, the enemy may have a word, but God has the last word. Check out this right here, Revelation 12, in the full context. We're getting, getting to the end now. Child number 5187. You rock. You rock, 5187. Bring it. Then you're a winner. You've won the prize. Mom and dad get to leave early. Dang, all right, he's a little bit long, but we're out of here. We will get the lunch on time, okay? Uh, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power in the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their life so much that they were afraid to die. Now, of course, I would have rather never thrown the fit to begin with. I would have said, hey, Gentile, no problem, buddy. Man, I break things all the time. You know, go to bed, you know, sometime tomorrow after I get done preaching and worshiping God, you know, you know, talking to God's people for the king of the universe, you know, you know, get done my pastoral duties, you know, we'll get together and we'll fix this thing, but you just chill out, no big deal. I wish I would have done that. You would have, should have, could have. That's the language of condemnation. It's a dead language. It's the language of regret. You see, the thing is, we cannot unsin. We can only repent. But every time we do, God pours out his grace and he leverages it against our sin and brings us into a deeper walk in intimacy with him. Amen. Now, our final contrast. It'll be fairly quick. So you want to tune in, you hate to miss it. Then you go back and listen to the tape or, you know, wait till it's on Fox News tonight or something. Okay, um, contrast, being worthy and deserving. Is it possible to be undeserving of, of God's grace, yet at the same time be worthy of it? Answer, abso stinking lutely Abso stinking lutely you see, if I deserve the good things that happened to me, it means I did something to deserve them. But if I'm worthy, it's because I'm somebody of enormous value. Question, are you worth, are you worth, are you worth the grace of God? Do you deserve the grace of God? I tell you, nothing, no picture illustrates this better than the prodigal son, right? You know the story. Kid says, Dad, I'm out of here. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go live wild and crazy for a while. Have a good time. I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to write you. I'm not going to FaceTime you. I'm not going to text you. I'm going to defriend you on Facebook, right? You're not going to follow me. I'm not going to follow you. Dad, I'm done. I'm going to do my own thing. And things got really bad, and, and, and he realized this is not a good thing. You know, when you're, like, feeding pigs and fighting the biggest pig for the food, you're like, not good. Just because you want to know, that's not a good place to be especially if you're Jewish, right? You know, and, and they, them and pigs didn't get along. And, and uh, he realizes, I'm going to go home. And he prayers his speech, right? I am not worthy to be your son. Make me one of your servants. And he's rehearsing that speech, rehearsing that speech, rehearsing that speech. And he's walking down the path, and he has pig poop just dripping off of him. You know, you know he, dirty. he didn't bother to get cleaned up, because you don't get cleaned up to take a bath. And, and his father sees him and runs out to him. And he, 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 goes, he gets out his card. He wrote it down. <laughs> um, a father, I, I am not, not where. No, stop, 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 stop. No, I don't hear any of that. Get the roll, your robe, get the sandals, get the ring. Let's throw a party. And the son who stayed home was furious. Dad, what are you doing? Dad, he doesn't deserve this. You know what dad said? I know. I know he doesn't. He doesn't deserve it, but he's worthy of it. He's worthy to be my son. He's worthy of it. 
Do you deserve the grace of God? Absolutely not. But I'm here to tell you, don't listen to the lies of the enemy because Jesus Christ says that you are worthy of the grace of God. You are worthy of the grace of God. You are worthy of His mercy. You are worthy of His grace. Amen? Amen. Say, I am worthy. Crazy, isn't it? You're worthy of that? Yeah, you are. Shame and condemnation. God says he has. He's dealt with it. He's dealt with it. We're going to sing a song. I love this song. I love grace. Grace is like my favorite thing. It's even better than chocolate, right? Even better than dark chocolate with almonds, right? Better than dark chocolate ice cream with mushroom cream and whipped cream and almonds, right? And with dark chocolate shavings on it, right? I mean, that, that's, how, that's how good grace is. And, 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 and I was thinking of Kirk's ice cream when I was saying that. I had one of those up there. And I was looking at Kirk, yeah, I'm thinking that. I have to go get me one of them. And, 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 and it, the song is about the scandal of grace. It's scandalous, isn't it? You know, that the people so undeserving, you are so undeserving, yet you at the same time are so worthy. How scandalous. And as we, as we sing this song, I want to remind you of one thing that our enemy fears. A believer who's equally convinced of these two realities, sin is serious, but Christ is enough, is the enemy's worst nightmare. And I say, let's terrify that little bugger, right? <laughs> let's terrify the heck out of him. If you're here today and you've never surrendered to Christ, I, I want to let you know something. You know, uh, Fig leaves don't work to cover you up. But there, there's actually a passage in Galatians 3.27 that talks about clothing that's much better than a fig leaf. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3.27, talking to church where he said, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of not understanding things and wanting to go back to law to earn things. And, and Paul says, hey, man, you're forgetting something. You're forgetting that all of you who were baptized into Christ I've clothed yourselves with Christ. You ain't wearing a fig leaf anymore. You're wearing the robe, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, you've never surrendered to Christ in Christian baptism, I mean, we can talk about it. Grab me after church. If you're here today and you're someone who's just struggling where, where the enemy has somehow enabled you to, you know, where you're defining yourself by what you did and shame has got a hold of you, you know, just let it go and embrace God's grace. Would you stand? God, we love you. And God, I pray this is a declaration of freedom as we worship you. In Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, move. May we worship this song and celebrate your grace like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.